Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. For four decades, André Picard immersed himself in reporting on the major health issues of our time. Inquisitive, insightful, blunt, compassionate, his health column in the Globe and Mail is considered a must-read by many. And he is the author of six best-selling books. André Picard delivered the 2023 Dalton Camp Lecture in Journalism, a co-production between Ideas and St. Thomas University. Our struggling Medicare system was one of his key topics. We have the least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. Ponder that for a second. The least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. Not something to be proud of. Medicare does cover everyone, but it covers everyone inadequately. Stated simply, what's wrong with Canadian healthcare today is we're trying to deliver 21st century care with a 1950s model of delivery and funding. We have an Edsel, but we need a Tesla. We're calling this program Pot, Policy and Pandemics, André Picard's reflections on 40 years of health journalism. André delivered the lecture early this year in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And a warning, in the first half of this lecture, he does talk about covering suicide. So we're coming through an earth-shattering, once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic. In Canada, in the wake of the pandemic, our beloved Medicare system is crumbling before our eyes. Health journalism has never been more important. Nor has it ever been more doubted, distrusted, and reviled. We live in paradoxical times. Angry, troubling times. Just read my Twitter feed. The world has never been richer. There are 2,668 billionaires around the globe, including 15 in Canada, according to Forbes magazine. At the same time, 648 million people live in abject poverty, subsisting on less than $2 a day. In Canada, one in nine people live below the poverty line, including millions of children. Nothing was worse for our health than poverty, trying to live without a an ability to afford the basics, suffering nonstop. The healthiest countries in the world have one trait in common, the smallest gap between the rich and the poor, close to equality. Yet inequality is rampant, and the gaps between the rich and poor are growing worse, and the middle is disappearing. It's like the auditorium. Everybody's at the sides and the middle is going. We too often forget or deliberately ignore what matters most to our health, individually and collectively. It's not medicine. Medicine is what you need when you're sick or disabled. Prescription drugs, surgery, therapy, mobility aids. What keeps us from getting sick much of the time is much more basic. Not lifestyle changes like eating blueberries, a Peloton bike, 
or buying rejuvenating body butter from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. Those things get a lot of media attention, but they're not really useful. The foundation of good health is a decent income, a roof over your head, a good education, nutritious food, a sound physical environment, a sense of belonging, and mostly hope. Hope is hard to find these days. All these things I mentioned, with few exceptions, are socioeconomic factors. Public policies that create a social safety net, a redistributive taxation system. These are the things that matter to our health. The single most powerful drug we have is money. That's probably the single most important lesson I've learned in 40 years of health journalism, that money is a powerful drug. But I've also learned that some people have way too much of it. Many people have far too little. And many of those who are in the middle don't really care enough about either of those ends of the spectrum. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. Health and money and social policy. And of course, a little bit of journalism. But most of all, I want to focus on how journalism can shape sound public policy. In a democratic society, public policies, in the form of laws, social programs, accepted mores, all these things are ways that we express what's important to citizens and to a country. It's how we give life to our values or not. Policy is also how we spend our political, economic, and social capital. There are choices made. Sometimes they're costly. The role of journalists, and health journalists in particular, is to try and make sure we get it right, to call out injustice, greed, political neglect, and other forms of selfishness and short-sightedness and stupidity. Obviously, from that list, we have no shortage of things to write about. But the role of journalists is also to celebrate the human spirit, to lift up and empower those who do good, those who get it right. We do the former relatively well exposing and calling out political and policy failings. But we don't do the latter so well. We don't celebrate success as much as we should. Banging pots and pans occasionally to thank health workers is not enough. Support has to be concrete and ongoing for everyone, from nurses to community workers and well beyond. Now, I'm an old-fashioned, old-school journalist. I write about others. In 40 years of writing for the public, I've never written about me. Be thankful for that. I have an aversion to the word I, except in talks like this one, where it's almost necessary. But I'm not going to overdo it. I'm not that interesting, so be thankful again. Instead of telling war stories, and that's a tedious thing that uh, many old-timers like me tend to do, I want to instead focus on a few big health policy issues and how they've had an impact on our lives and on the way we perceive and deliver healthcare in particular. Now, AIDS has been the arc of my career. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome is what it stands for. I wrote my first story about AIDS in 1981 when I was working at a student newspaper. Back then, we called it GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. Words matter. Thankfully, the word changed. The virus hadn't yet been discovered then, that didn't happen until 1984. There were no treatments, and there was a lot of prejudice, and there was a lot of fear. It was more of a political story than a health story. It was about homophobia, racism, fear. It wasn't about medicine. There was none. The German physician and writer Rudolf Virchow famously said, 
Politics is nothing else but medicine on a large scale. What he meant is that political action is required to solve the worst health problems. Medicine can only do so much. AIDS taught us just how deadly political inaction can be, a lesson that has been brutally delivered time and time again, most recently by COVID-19. But I'll get to COVID a little later. Let's not forget that AIDS is the deadliest pandemic of modern times, probably the deadliest in history. About 85 million people have been infected with HIV to date, and more than 40 million of them have died. For the first few years of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, politicians and policymakers dismissed it. They called it the gay plague. The people who got infected, well, they deserved it. Bad behavior. They blamed the victims. They raided bathhouses instead of distributing condoms. But gay men were, by and large, part of an educated and well-to-do community. They knew how to advocate, and they knew how to fight. And that changed healthcare forever. We should be thankful. AIDS was the first time patients really had a face and a voice in the media and in the public. AIDS also opened the door to global health coverage. It drove home a really important point, that a virus can travel around the world easily, that what happens in Johannesburg and Port-au-Prince matters just as much as what happens in Montreal and Takadzi-Chili. The most powerful and impactful stories of my career have been about AIDS. I spent years writing about one tiny aspect of the pandemic, the tainted blood scandal. It affected this province very directly because it's a large population of hemophiliacs, which is a familial disease. Many of you in the audience are young, and you won't remember the tainted blood scandal, but more than 30,000 Canadians were infected by blood and blood products and blood transfusions that were contaminated with HIV or hepatitis C virus. It's the worst public health scandal in Canadian history, and it was largely preventable. My first book, The Gift of Death, was about the tainted blood scandal. Our work at the Globe and Mail, exposing the gruesome details of how the Red Cross and the government's failed Canada, uh, pressured the government to call an inquiry, the Creever Inquiry. That, in turn, led to more than $5 billion in compensation for the victims and their families. Now, that's impactful journalism if I do say so myself. And I'm not saying in any way that I did this alone. We were a team, and this became a big public story for all media. When I started at the Globe and Mail as a summer student, I principally covered two issues, AIDS and abortion. You give the summer students the icky stuff, to be honest. I was assigned to monitor the action outside the Morgenthaler Clinic in Toronto, the scene of constant and sometimes violent anti-choice protests. One day, the clinic was firebombed. Another day, Dr. Morgenthaler was attacked by a man who tried to stab him with garden shears. The man was disarmed by Judy Rebick, a feminist icon in Canada. It was an exciting assignment to have as a student. Abortion is an example of a health issue where the public is light years ahead of the politicians and policymakers because they live it. There are constant twists and turns and variations like the arrival of the morning-after pill, the abortion pill, and the endless campaigns by anti-choice zealots and their political allies. The role of the media in stories like this is to cover these issues factually and fairly, and not to be moralistic, misogynist, or partisan. For the most part, I think we've done so fairly well. But journalists don't always have the impact that they hope 
For example, it took almost 30 years for Canada to approve the abortion bill. I think I wrote about 18 columns on the topic in that period. So I'm kind of like a water torture test. I keep going until things change. A society where we respect bodily autonomy and reproductive choice is far better than a society where fundamental rights are violated for political gain. That's why you have to keep at these things, no matter how long it takes. Medical assistance in dying is another issue that's in the news a lot these days. Canadians with a grievous and irremediable medical condition have been able to request made in Canada since early 2017, but many, many barriers remain. A parliamentary committee said just last week that access to MAID should be extended to those with mental illness as a sole condition, uh, to mature minors, and to people with dementia. Like abortion, MAID is not a new debate, and it's not a debate that will end anytime soon. I first wrote about assisted death in the 1980s, when it was kind of being done on the down low, with compassionate doctors hastening the death of cancer patients to lessen their suffering. The issue really burst into newspaper headlines, though, in 1993, when Sue Rodriguez, a BC woman with ALS, asked for a medically assisted death. When she was refused, she sued. She fought for the right to die right up to the Supreme Court, and she lost. Sorry, you have to keep suffering. That was the message in the court ruling. But she got an assisted death anyhow, a kind of final screw you to the anti-choice, pro-suffering lobby, to legislators, and to the courts. But it took a long time for the law to change again, for policy to catch up with people. In 2015, the right to die issue came back to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the learned justices came to a different conclusion. Kay Carter, who suffered from spinal stenosis, argued that she didn't have the ability to take her own life, and denying her an assisted death was therefore discrimination based on a disability. Because anyone is allowed to kill themselves. Suicide is not a crime in Canada, not since 1972. Kay Carter won, and that seeming technicality opened the door to almost anyone requesting an assisted death. Equity is not a triviality. This was a really important distinction and decision. The same argument is being used now in lawsuits by people with mental illness and dementia. They want to expand the law because they too are being discriminated against. Now, some of you may feel uncomfortable. These issues make us a little squirmy in our seats. But I love writing about issues like the right to die because they're complex, they're messy, they're emotional, and ultimately they're about patients taking control. And patients don't have enough control. Our health system is still far, far too paternalistic. I've always been a fierce advocate for the right to die for that reason. It's about agency over one's body. Nothing's more important. Now, choice shouldn't be a dirty word, whether it's the choice to carry a pregnancy to term, to carry on living despite your suffering, or your choice of gender. The homophobia we saw in the 1980s has morphed into the transphobia of the 2020s. This too will pass, but not quickly enough. Too many people will suffer in the interim. Much more will be written on transitioning, gender reassignment, and related issues in the years to come. Don't believe everything you read, please, especially on Twitter. Don't amplify the hysteria and the hatred. There's already way too much of it out there. The role of the media will once again 
will be to present a fair picture of the societal evolution that's unfolding. So far, we're not doing so well on this topic. Former Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, when he decriminalized homosexuality in 1967, famously said, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. Well, the state has no business in your pants or in your pronouns either. We've got to catch up. Young people have a lot to teach us about gender identity, sexuality, and belonging, and we should heed their wisdom. Now, mental health is an area where I think I've seen the greatest change in society and in journalism practices over the decades. It's quite uplifting. Mental illnesses have always been a source of great shame and stigma. People with mental illnesses were hidden away in prisons, in group homes, in family homes, in communities. Out of sight and out of mind. Again, because it made us uncomfortable. And the media was complicit in this approach. We perpetuated stereotypes like the belief that the wrong-headed belief that people with mental illnesses are violent and dangerous. They are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. We criminalized unusual behaviors, and that's tragic. And we still do it to this day. But things have improved. The stigma of living with the most common forms of mental illness, like depression and anxiety, it's virtually disappeared. It's almost celebrated in, on platforms like Instagram. Not a bad thing. But we still struggle with writing well about more serious forms of illness, like schizophrenia and eating disorders, and especially psychosis. That one really scares us. Still, health journalists have played an important role in changing public attitudes for the better. We started to understand and convey that brain disease is no different than heart disease or lung disease. They're all three major organs. Mental illness is not some moral failure. It's not the fault of your parents. It's a complex mix of biological and environmental factors and triggers. We barely understand the brain. There are more neurons in our head than there are stars in the sky. We have so much more to learn. But in my time, coverage of suicide has changed dramatically too. Until a few years ago, there was an unwritten rule, and sometimes an even more explicit rule, in newsrooms that said, you don't write about suicide. That's shameful. So we used euphemisms like, died suddenly. Weasel words that fooled no one. Now we're more honest. On the other end of the spectrum, when we did write about suicide, we tended to do it in a very exploitative manner. Usually when we did mention suicide, there was a celebrity involved, like Kurt Cobain or some kind of public death that you couldn't avoid. And then we published all kinds of gruesome details that were uncalled for. Too little and too much information. Both of those are bad journalism. You've got to get it right. That's especially true in healthcare, where so much is so personal to people's lives. We should write about mental illness the same way we should write about everything else, accurately and with grace and respect for our subjects. One of the initiatives I'm most proud of in my career is helping write the Mindset Guide. It's a small style guide for journalists on how to write appropriately and professionally about mental illness, suicide, and substance misuse. I would urge everyone in the audience to get a copy, especially the journalism students I see hiding over in the corner here. It's free of charge, available online, so the price is right. Now, I just mentioned substance misuse. There are few things I've written about more during my career than drugs. Prescription drugs, pot, opioids, meth, magic mushrooms, alcohol, you name it. 
the list goes on and on. Again, drugs are an area where there's a lot of misinformation and even more moralism, along with some appallingly bad public policy. People have used drugs for time immemorial. They always have and they always will. Their use is intrinsically linked to culture, history, and religious practices. They're even fun. Imagine, fun. As long as there have been drugs, there have been people warning about slippery slopes and preaching abstinence. This hasn't worked for thousands of years, but that doesn't seem to stop us from continuing to pass idiotic drug laws. Remember, not every slope is slippery. Sometimes these slopes are paths to progress. Let's talk drugs then. And starting with pot, because I happened to mention that in the title of my talk. It's not more important than the others, but I put it in there. Cannabis was legalized in Canada on October 17th, 2018. It was not on April 20th, by the way, for the 420 fans. I can tell you the story of 420 some other time. But we forget that legalization was first proposed in Canada way back in 1972 by the Ledane Commission. It's a sad reminder that policy change takes time, often a long, long time. I was reading a piece earlier this week that said legalization of cannabis has been a failure because companies are going broke and a lot of people are still buying their weed on the street, not in government stores. Tisk tisk. In reality, cannabis legislation has been a big success. Why? Because people are not being charged with minor drug offenses anymore. Many people have had their records expunged. That was the point. Public health is not about increasing corporate profits. It's about people's health. And that's how we have to judge success and failure. Public health is about harm reduction, regardless of what the drug is. Today, overdoses are one of the biggest killers in Canada. They rival COVID in many provinces. Most overdoses are preventable. But criminalizing drugs drives people underground. It's deadly. That means the supply is unpredictable and it's unsafe. It also means people fear getting busted. The single biggest reason people overdose is because they use alone, out of fear. Overdoses are easily reversible. People should never be using alone. Personally, I believe all drugs should be legal. And my bosses don't even fire me for saying it over and over again. We should be free to use the drugs of our choice. Alcohol, heroin, cannabis, caffeine, Ritalin, whatever. They're all more or less the same thing. You use them for different reasons. All drugs can be used safely and responsibly. And that should be our aim. Not to encourage people to do more drugs, but when they do, do them safely. That's what we should hope for. But we need to educate people, not try to scare them. Nobody's ever been scared straight. And we need to ensure that the drugs people do use are as safe as possible. That means regulating, just like we do with food and drink and legal drugs. That's the essence of public health. Give people the tools to protect themselves. That too is the power of journalism. Arm people with information. As a health journalist, I've always embraced the principles of public health. I'm really happy that I learned these early in my career. Promote harm reduction, not unrealistic alternatives. Meet people where they're at. Don't moralize. Be pragmatic and realistic. Don't judge. Listen. And follow the evidence, no matter how unpopular it makes you.
You're listening to Pot, Policy and Pandemics, Andre Picard's reflections on 40 years of health journalism. On CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. We're a broadcast and a podcast. You can subscribe to Ideas on the CBC Listen app or through any of your favorite podcast apps. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Award-winning author and Globe and Mail columnist Andre Picard delivered the 2023 Dalton Camp Lecture in Journalism. It was held at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Let's return to Andre's lecture, picking up with one of the biggest health stories of the 21st century to date. Now, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the elephant in the room, COVID-19. My audience grew exponentially during the pandemic. It's something that's consumed my life for the past three years, for better or for worse. Early in the pandemic, somewhere in that intense, life-altering spring of 2020, one of my editors said, it's like you've been preparing for this your whole career. She was right, I guess. As I mentioned at the outset, I've covered infectious diseases and pandemics for decades. I'm also a big fan of medical history which came in useful. Almost everything that occurred during the pandemic was predictable, generally, if not specifically. Early in the pandemic, I reread a book called The Great Influenza about the pandemic of Spanish flu in 1918 to 20. Everything in there told the story of what was to come in COVID. The early fear and the solidarity, the letting our guard down, the pandemic fatigue, the anger, the misinformation, the premature declarations of victory. We humans are shockingly predictable. We make the same mistakes over and over again. If you want to be good at prediction, know your history, especially your political history. Humans are also incredibly resilient. We can adapt to almost anything, no matter how horrible. Americans shrug off 1.1 million COVID deaths like nothing happened. Worldwide, we've recorded 6.8 million deaths officially, but the real toll of COVID-19 is likely in the 20 million range. There are many, many excess deaths that are explained by largely by one thing. And all we want to do is what? Get back to normal. And I use the word normal in quotes because I'm not sure what it means anymore. What distinguishes COVID from other public health disasters is it was really the first pandemic of the digital age. And that added a whole other level of complication to the response, especially for someone like me who entered journalism using a typewriter before the web, before cell phones and all that stuff. This is the point where the students faint. What, no cell phone? God forbid. We had things called libraries back then. Now, we had not only a global outbreak of novel coronavirus, but a pandemic of misinformation and an ongoing pandemic of distrust. The infodemic is going to continue to claim many lives for years to come. That too is predictable. I could speak a whole other hour about misinformation and disinformation, but I won't 
I won't, other than to reiterate the first point I made tonight. Health journalism is more important than it's ever been. Now, disinformation is the deliberate spread of malicious lies and propaganda. Powerful people like Joe Mercola and Donald Trump do this to make money and to promote a harmful agenda. They weaponize lies for profit and power. Misinformation is false or inaccurate information that is spread by people who've been duped or misled. People who embrace conspiracy theories are largely unwitting stooges. More than anything, I feel sorry for them. The way to counter the infodemic is with better information and with better education. It's going to take time. But we need to teach people, especially young people, to distinguish sense from nonsense, facts from lies. The good news is that younger people are way better than us old folks at doing this. The big propagators of misinformation are people over 50. They're not people under 30. They're catching on to this. That gives me a little bit of hope. Now, I want to shift gears a bit and talk about something that's also been a consistent and overarching part of my beat and my career for many years, and that's Medicare. Beyond public health, there's health policy, and I wade into that often. I've mentioned many hot-button issues that have arisen over the years, but a constant has been the state of the health system itself. It has, for as long as I can remember, lurched from crisis to crisis. These days, we're very close to a nadir, to a bottoming out. I hope. One in five people don't have a family doctor in Canada. The chances of getting one are slim to nil. ERs are closing with increasing frequency. When they're open, they're overflowing. People are being triaged in parking lots. It can take eight hours to get an ambulance in much of this country. Months or even years to get a referral to a specialist, never mind the surgery. Drug shortages have become routine. Approval of new drugs takes forever. And we still haven't figured out how to pay for drugs, especially for rare disorders. Uh, We get people doing GoFundMe campaigns. That shouldn't happen in a country with Medicare. Doctors are burning out and closing their practices. Nurses are leaving in droves. Care aides are jumping at the opportunity for better work at Tim Hortons. It pays better and has better benefits. We're kicking people out of hospital and sending to nursing homes against their will. Long-term care homes have become killing fields. Of the 50,000 COVID deaths in Canada, 25,000 have been in nursing homes, home to 1% of the population. It's been a massacre of neglect. As access to care diminishes, costs continue to soar. We're not getting value for money. Oh, and we still use fax machines, 19th century technology. So these headlines, these are all things taken from the headlines, and they're pretty damn depressing. Increasingly, our experiences within the health system are frightening. So why is this happening? Again, we can find answers in our history. Medicare began just after the Second World War, a heady time when nations were rebuilding and investing in public services like hospitals and social programs like pensions and Medicare. People were also making babies, lots of babies. It was the beginning of the baby boom, which is now coming home to roost. Now, Saskatchewan created the first publicly funded hospital insurance program, 1947. Other provinces followed suit. In 1957, the federal government offered to pay half of the province's escalating hospital bills, but they had a couple of conditions. Access had to be universal and free, 
In other words, no user fees. That funding model was extended to physician care about a decade later, in 1966. Now, unfortunately, since then, not much has changed. Meanwhile, the world from medicine to demographics has changed a lot. So have the needs of patients. In 1957, when Medicare was born, Canada was a young country. The median age was 27. Life expectancy, though, was only 67. And the health system delivered little other than hospital-based care for acute injuries and delivering babies, of course. We built a health system for the needs of the population at that time, and that was totally appropriate. Today, the median age in our country is 47. Life expectancy is 82. The vast majority of care is chronic care for older people. The baby boomers have come of age, but the health system has not. In Canada, only hospital care and physician services are 100% covered by Medicare. They're the only services considered, quote, medically necessary, unquote. There's no rhyme or reason to the way we publicly fund health services in Canada. 6% of dental care, 40% of home care and long-term care, 50% of drugs. Nothing for hearing aids or glasses or contraception. Where's the logic there? As a result, we have the least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. Ponder that for a second. The least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. Not something to be proud of. Medicare does cover everyone, but it covers everyone inadequately. Stated simply, what's wrong with Canadian healthcare today is we're trying to deliver 21st century care with a 1950s model of delivery and funding. We have an Edsel, but we need a Tesla. And my point here is that we need modernization. I'm not suggesting for a moment we need Elon Musk, just to be clear. And don't get me wrong on another point. We deliver excellent health care in Canada. A lot of the time, we get good care in spite of the system, though, not because of it. If you're in the right place and the right time in Canadian health care, you get the best care in the world. It just doesn't happen often enough. The workarounds aren't working for the workers anymore. So how do we drag Medicare kicking and screaming into the 21st century? Again, that's something I've been writing about for a long time, decades. And my message remains devilishly simple. The problems we have are systemic. Therefore, let's fix the system. That's what we have to do. We need to stop talking about it, stop pointing fingers, stop passing the buck, stop blaming patients, doctors, politicians, bureaucrats, stop just demanding more money to do more of the same, roll up our sleeves and fix it. Of course, that's a little easier said than done. But to me, the role of journalism isn't only to critique and expose failures, but it's to propose solutions. And I should say in passing, that should also be the role of opposition parties in parliament and legislatures. Saying things like everything is broken is not useful. Being specific about what is broken and how you're going to fix it is the kind of leadership we need, and we need it desperately. So when it comes to fixing healthcare, where do we start? I think we've lost the plot a bit, so before we can even start the heavy lifting, I think we need to ask ourselves some really big, fundamental, and maybe even existential questions. How do we ensure that every Canadian gets the right care in the right place at the right time? That's the point of a healthcare system. How do we structure our health and welfare system so that everyone can live to their full potential? And how do we, in all our healthcare interactions, prioritize quality of life? We don't do that enough. Now, the good news is we have the answers to all these questions. If there's one thing Canada does better than any country in the world, it's study the shortcomings of our health system. We're masters of that. 
Since the advent of Medicare, there have been at least 150 high-level government-sponsored reports written about the need to reform Medicare. Every one of those reports features a long list of recommendations, most of which, unfortunately, have not been acted upon. The principal problem we have is not the lack of solutions, it's a lack of implementation. We don't have a health crisis in Canada, we have an implementation crisis. We have a lack of openness to change. In this country, we, again, don't have an absence of solutions, but a lack of courage to implement them. Now, we in the media constantly write the horror stories. The patient who waits 72 hours in a hallway. The rape victim who's turned away from hospital for lack of nurses. The town without a doctor. The baby be denied a life-saving drug. And on and on. But there are many ERs with reasonable waits. There are many towns successfully recruiting doctors. There are magnet hospitals that never have trouble recruiting nurses. There are health clinics that have had a dramatic impact on their communities. And health teams were constantly reinventing how medicine is delivered. So here's my pithy recipe for successful healthcare reform. Let's start by scaling up our successes and stop perpetuating our failures. Every problem we have in Canadian healthcare is structural and administrative in nature, not a problem of technology, not a problem of medicine, and not a lack of money. It's an attitude problem. As I mentioned earlier, we're world champions when it comes to studying the shortcomings of our health system. A few years back, I wrote a book about the history of reform, or lack thereof. As part of the research, I read most of those 150 reports I alluded to earlier. It's not something I recommend. But somewhere during this painful journey, I had an epiphany. I realized that all these reports say more or less the same thing. So I took the hundreds of recommendations in these reports I typed them into an Excel spreadsheet, and I soon realized that there were really just a handful of truly meaningful things that we needed to do. And if we did them, we would fundamentally reshape and rejuvenate the health system. So here are the top five. Number one, primary care. The foundation of every good health system in the world is primary care. But in Canada, that's the weakest part of our system. When you build on a shaky foundation, your whole house risks crumbling. And the House of Medicare is crumbling today. In an aging society, we need to move away from an acute, episodic care model to a chronic care model. Until every Canadian has a medical home, someone who's ultimately responsible for their care, in addition to them, someone who helps them navigate the system, it will always be inadequate. All the technology and all the money in the world will fix nothing as long as we have millions of Canadians without a primary care provider. Today, there are 6.5 million people in that boat. Number two, community care. We need to treat people where they live, in the community, not only in warehouse-style institutions like hospitals and nursing homes. Our system is much too hospital-centric. We have really good models of community care, like community health centers, but they're underused. Again, community care is largely about primary care. We're not going to train thousands of doctors overnight So we need to create teams of health providers and provide them with administrative support. We need doctors to be doctoring and nurses to be nursing. We don't need them pushing paper around. Number three, all the reports have always said we have to extend universal health coverage to prescription drugs. Now, there's been a lot of political chatter about this for about 60 years, but little progress. Universal doesn't mean everything has to be covered publicly. It means that everyone has to have access to essential drugs. 
Innovations in drug therapy make rethinking drug coverage more urgent than ever. The model we have now, which is essentially drug formularies that provide yes or no coverage, aren't going to cut it in the era that's coming, an era of personalized medicine and genomics. Number four, I mentioned this before, but social determinants of health are really important. We need to invest in prevention, particularly for socially disadvantaged and marginalized groups such as Indigenous peoples. But above all, we have to stop pretending that health is merely a medical issue. 95% of health spending in Canada is for sickness care. Only 5% goes to prevention. We don't have that mix right. We have to make more effort to keep people healthy rather than waiting for them to get sick and sticking them in a queue. As I said earlier, what really matters to our health is having a decent income, a roof over our heads, a good education, access to healthy food, a healthy environment, and social connections. Number five, human resources. Health should be a hands-on, people-centered business. But we have to make sure we have the right mix of health workers and a good work environment. Staffing is without a doubt the number one challenge in healthcare today. We have to do better at recruitment, but mostly at retention. It's a tragedy that we probably have more nurses in this country who are not nursing than we have who are. The solution is out there. The only way to do that, to recruit and retain, is to fix the workplace. That matters to patients a lot too. As sociologist Pat Armstrong famously said, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. If we treat workers badly, we'll never have good health care. Of course, there are many, many other things that could be done as part of the health reform, but if you do those big five, you're going to make a dramatic difference and you're going to do it quickly. And it's not necessarily going to cost more money. We can't let perfect be the enemy of good. We have to get on with it and not fear the inevitable stumbles and miscues. We've been paralyzed for too long. Now, I'm almost out of time, so let me make a couple of final observations. I started my talk tonight by saying health journalism has never been more important. That's true of journalism more broadly. Misinformation and disinformation are running rampant, exploited by kleptocrats and power mongers who want to undermine democracy for personal gain. We have to call them out. We have to really underscore what they're doing and how they're messing up society. We need journalists more than ever because they're honest brokers. In a world awash in information, we also need journalists to synthesize and analyze to help the public keep up. We need opinion writers and columnists to offer up analysis and guidance as well. Even if you don't like their opinions, I really urge people, read the people you don't, whose opinions you don't like as much as the ones you do. That's good for your brain. And it makes you form better arguments for the things you don't like. But having an opinion isn't enough. It should be a reasoned opinion presented fairly. And fair doesn't mean impartial or indifferent. When I began working at the Globe and Mail, June Colwood gave the first Dalton Camp lecture in journalism back in 2002. She was still a columnist at the newspaper. I was a lowly student. She was already a legend, but she was also very kind and generous, especially to the youngest reporters. Journalists are, for the most part, a hard-bitten, cynical lot. But June Colwood taught me a really important lesson. It's okay to have a heart. In fact, it's essential. Your audience isn't just people who read your paper or watch your newscast. It's the people who can't afford to do so, the marginalized and the excluded. Now, being a journalist is a great privilege, and doubly so for someone like me with a bully pulpit in a national newspaper. 
someone who's invited to wonderful communities like this to talk to thoughtful audiences. What's the point of doing this work if you're not going to try to do good? June Colwood would always remind us of that. Over the years, that's what I've tried to do. Try to influence and improve our public policies. Often slowly, but I kept at it. I tried to be an agent of social change, as we used to stay in the student press. I think that's probably still the motto of Canadian University Press. And nowhere do we need social change more than in Canada's health system. The philosophy of Medicare is very simple. No one should be denied essential care because of an inability to pay. That's not written down anywhere, but that's our philosophy. And that is, in many ways, the embodiment of Canadian values. That we don't only have individual rights, but we have collective responsibilities to each other. That makes us different from that big elephant next door, where individual rights trump everything. And I'm using Trump in that sentence with a capital T. With great power comes great responsibility. Someone famous once said that. I'm pretty sure it was Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, but it may have been Voltaire. I don't know. Nevertheless, it's important. With great power comes great responsibility. I'm not sure I have much power, but the little that I have, I've tried to use responsibly. And that's what I urge the next generation of journalists to do as well. I hope I've driven home two really key points tonight. One, policy matters, especially in the health field. And journalists can and should endeavor to spur improvement. And number two, that while Canada's health system is struggling, it's fixable. This is no time for cynicism, nor for nihilism. After three years of pandemic living, people want some hope, and we owe it to them. And there's a lot to be hopeful for. I probably know Medicare as well as anyone in this country. And I'm hopeful it can be fixed. But I want us to get on with it. I'm also adamant that we have an obligation to fix it, to give life to our values. Anything else would be a betrayal. Now, let me close just on a more quiet note by thanking everyone who made this lecture possible, the family of the late, great Dalton Camp, the journalism faculty of St. Thomas University, uh, Professor Philip Lee in particular, as well as CBC Ideas and its senior producer, Mary Link. I'm really counting on them to edit this talk so that I sound smart and coherent. You guys got the long version, sorry. But most of all, I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. And mostly, I want to thank everyone who's read me over the years for reading and not tearing up their paper too, too often. Thank you. You were listening to Pot, Policy, and Pandemics, Andre Picard's Reflections on 40 Years of Health Journalism. The acclaimed author and Globe and Mail health columnist's 2023 Dalton Camp Lecture in Journalism. It was held at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to see additional material for this episode. Special thanks to Philip Lee, Kim Fenwick, Jeffrey Carlton, and Michael Camp. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Producer, Mary Link. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. 
We'll leave you now with an excerpt from the audience question and answer period following Andre Picard's lecture. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Patricia Seaman. I work with the New Brunswick Health Research Foundation. We fund health research from bench, so things happening in precision medicine, through to policy research chairs here at STU. So we're sort of all over this space where it's health. Um, the five recommendations, primary care, community care, extend universal health coverage to include pharmaceutical drugs, social determinants of health. I think we need to talk about that a whole heck of a lot more in society. Um, and then human resources. So building the system that would actually create change. I was wondering, where do you see research in those recommendations um, in a province where CIHR receives $1 billion, and of that, we only get about $1.8 million. Yeah, so I think research is in every one of those. I, I think we do far too much uh, medical research and not near enough health services research. We should be studying, again, what, what works and what doesn't, and we do a terrible job of that. And Canada, you know, it's the, one of the big frustrations to me is you know, people always say, oh, we should have one Medicare system. But the reality is we don't and we never will because of our constitution. But we should take advantage of it. And these should be, this is a living lab that exists nowhere else in the world. We should be comparing what's New Brunswick doing compared to Saskatchewan. Why does this thing work better here? You know, Saskatchewan has great intake. So it has a single intake model where you go to a hospital and then you get triage to wherever. It can be a nursing home, it can be to the ER, it can be a family doc. Everybody should be doing what Saskatchewan is, but why aren't we? Because, I don't know, nobody seems to know about it. It's all this, nobody, re, instead people reinvent the wheel. People call me all the time. Oh, we're going to do this really uh, dramatic thing in Ontario. We're going to send paramedics to visit elders in their home. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure New Brunswick's been doing that since about the 1980s. So, why don't you take a trip to New Brunswick instead of launching another study? It's so, so frustrating. So I, th I think, again, research comes into play in all of those things. Our, all our interventions have to be evidence-based. As I said, even if they're unpopular, even if they don't look obviously like a solution, if the research is there, let's do it. And let's, you know, scale up. We're a land, uh, Monique Bégin famously said, we're a land of pilot projects. We do all these really good pilot projects, they work, and then they die because there's no funding. It's, you know, I, I'm bec I've become a believer that we shouldn't fund, you may not like this, we shouldn't fund research unless we have an upfront commitment to implement it if it's successful. Agreed. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Hello. Uh, my name is Cesar Camacho. I'm a second year student for journalism. I want to ask you. What are the aspects you consider the most when talking about um, sensitive topics? Because it is important what you say, but also how you say it. Uh, when you write about healthcare, you write about very sensitive issues. Um, I'm actually, I'm constantly surprised by how much information people share with me. It's shocking to me. Uh, we don't publish most of it, but like people are really open about when, you know, when they have an issue and they share, they overshare. And makes it interesting for my job, but you try to, I think you try to present relevant facts. You say it in a blunt way. The, the, my biggest frustration with uh, media stories this, these days is how people say things in kind of mealy mouth ways. 
you know, I, I interview, we do lots of stories that become non-stories because people aren't willing to talk enough to make it a story. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with uh, shelving things because you can't do it right. Uh, so, you know, be sensitive. Think of, put yourself in the person's shoes, I think is a really important one. So I'll end, again, because I'm a journalist, I'll end with an anecdote that maybe will answer this question better than that rambling bit. So one, the, the most impactful letter I ever got, it was actually an email, said this. The first line was, I killed my baby. So that's going to get your attention, right? Even when you get a lot of mail like me. So I read this, a very emotional letter from a woman who had had a baby in hospital, uh, was sleeping with the baby, uh, rolled over, suffocated the baby. The baby died. So she wanted to tell me her story because she thought that, you know, this was wrong. Why did the hospital let her sleep with her baby? She had a really long labor. She had sleeping pills. It was a dangerous situation. And I, so I talked to this woman at length and I said to her, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you really want to tell this story because I know people and they're going to be, they're going to be awful to you. They're going to call you a murderer and they're going to say horrible things. You're a bad mom. You know, are you, re- are you ready for this? And, you know, she told me she had lots of mental health problems. She had depression after this. She was suicidal. So I said, uh, and no, and then she was insistent. No, I know it's going to be bad, but I want to tell my story. So then I said, well, I want to talk to your psychiatrist. I want permission. Talk to her. You know, so you ask for this stuff. I didn't put this not in the story, but I talked to the psychiatrist. Do you think she's ready for this? Will this cause more harm than good? Psychiatrist was like, hmm, on the one, I'm not sure. So I had a good chat. I didn't have to pay for the psychiatrist. That was even better. So you do, you do your due diligence. You don't just, you know, I could have easily just said, oh, this is a great email. I'm going to bang out this story tomorrow. I did that story three months later, and it was a much better story for it. Uh, she was much more thoughtful three months later. She had gotten therapy. Uh, she had put this into some perspective. Uh, I, in the meantime, I studied the issue of co-sleeping. What do we know about co-sleeping? Is it dangerous? Why do hospitals do it? That story was published. It was super impactful. Within a week, there was a new policy. Every hospital in the country banned co-sleeping after birthing. They realized this is crazy. This is a death sentence. You don't put babies in that position. So you have to have a, a cot beside the mum. So that she, she so I, when I published this follow-up story, she called me and she was in tears. This is what I wanted. I wanted to honor my child by changing this so it doesn't happen again. So that that's what you want to do. You want to tell stories in somewhat gruesome detail, but you want to do it right and you want to be respectful. So I said that in my talk. You want to be respectful, you want to be accurate, and you want to be impactful. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.